0: Good morning everyone and a very warm welcome to Hillhead at the Grosvenor and a special welcome if you're visiting us this morning. I don't don't see anyone I don't recognise but in case I've missed you. Everything that you need to follow the service this morning is actually on your printed sheet today, we're not using the screen today. So I've printed it in a wee bit bigger font than normal just for people who are a bit challenged like myself and Geoff just in case you have difficulty with the hymn words. A really special welcome to Rebecca Sharp who is leading our worship this morning and to her dad who's <coughs> here uh, sharing in worship with us this morning. Rebecca is a member of Knightswood Baptist Church but she's also a hospital chaplain with I think for a 23 year old or have you turned 24
1: now? 24.
0: She's so old now, 24 <laughs> years old. For a 24 year old she has had immense experience already as a hospital chaplain that I think would challenge most of us uh, who are that bit older and I think you will really uh, warm to what uh, Rebecca has to say to us. Uh, Please everybody stay as usual and have a cup of tea or coffee with us at the end of the service. Good
1: morning everyone, Um, thank you for the welcome. Um, I bring with me Greetings from our home church in Knightswood, Um, and really it is an honour to be able to worship with you this morning. Um, As was mentioned, I'm a chaplain, I'm not a, a, well, although I'm a minister, I don't do the the, the Sunday thing very often, so it's quite nice to to be here with you um, and to be worshipping with you. Let let me start by, by reading some words of scripture. This is from Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and do not forget all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your disease, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good as long as you live, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Your Lord works vindication and justice for all who are oppressed. He knows the ways of Moses. And his acts are to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, Mm -hmm. slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not accuse, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are as high above the earth, so great is his steadfast love. As far as the east is from the west, so far He removes our transgressions from us. That's the God that we get to worship. A gracious God who seeks justice for oppressed, is slow to anger, steadfast in love, and is so, so forgiving. So as we come together to worship, we bring all that we are, all that that distracts us, all that consumes us. We don't leave it behind, but we bring it all to God. Because that is our God. Can I open our service in a word of prayer? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for the opportunity each week to come together, old friends and new, to come together as community to worship you. We ask that as we approach your word and as we sing worship to you, that you hear us. that our voices and our words and our singing are a blessing to you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to start with our first hymn, Bless the Lord, O My Soul. I just think it's so beautiful, it's so nice to know that there's going to be people standing who, who sing the songs with passion, it's great, and I'm going to try my hardest to not ignore you, but I've been told to not worry about it, so we're all good. Um, Anne had mentioned that it would be okay if I talked to you a little bit about my job, um, and, and I'm going to just do that at the beginning rather than make the sermon about it, um, but my job as a, as a hospital chaplain or as a healthcare chaplain means that I spend my week in the hospital. And I'm, I'm over at the Queen Elizabeth, which is a, the new one with the big helipad, which is very exciting. And um, Edith in the corner, she um, she works with us sometimes, and she's one of our volunteers. So it was really nice to see a familiar face when she came in. I'm not trying to embarrass you, Edith, um, but it's nice to see someone who's got an idea of, of what we do. And I was going to ask if there was children, if anyone kind of knew what a chaplain was or where you might find a chaplain so I'm still going to ask that question so what places do you think you would find a chaplain? Prison? Prison? Thanks Dad I can yeah. always rely on my daddy <laughs> <laughs> Anyone else? Industry, <laughs> Industry Absolutely Army. Army The forces both are the same answer The chaplain at uni absolutely. Shopping centres Yep Yep, airports, absolutely. It's a lovely Salvation Army chaplain at the Glasgow airport who's retiring soon, he's such a nice man. But um, That's right, we, we get chaplains in all different areas of life and, and I'm very fortunate that I get to work in the hospital and it's quite a, a well-known form of chaplaincy but, but it's nice to know that you all have an idea that they're, they're everywhere. I, I love my job it can be really sad sometimes it can be quite difficult sometimes but I love it and I get to meet very different people every day sometimes those people are Christians like us and they ask me to pray with them or read the Bible a lot of the time they might have a different faith but actually most of the time when I meet someone they'll say to me I'm not religious but I do believe in God I do believe in something not sure what it is, or I don't like the fact that I have to get up a certain time in the morning to go to worship him. And and then also some people have really legitimate reasons of why they don't want to be connected to something. But most people I meet with have an understanding that there's something bigger than us. And it's such a privilege to go in, knowing from my perspective that God is with us in that conversation, and to be able to support them in whatever that is. One of my colleagues... um, who's very good with his bible um, likes to to liken us to different parts of the bible so I was going to read um, a passage but I'm not going to read, I'm just going to tell you the story and why I think it relates to, to chaplaincy and when Jesus was um, being challenged which happened a lot he was being challenged about his teachings on eternal life and what it meant and I'm not going down that road because we're going to go somewhere dark later so I'm not going to go down that road just now but but he's asking who his neighbour is, the story of the Good Samaritan. And, and he's challenged to say, well, who is my neighbour? Who is the person I have to love like I love myself? And in that story, the priest and the Levite, two people that you would expect something of, fear for themselves and go in the opposite direction. But the very person that no one expects anything of is the one Jesus uses as the example the one who paid for someone to get help who, who, who did the practical things and I don't think only chaplains can play the good Samaritan but I think that kind of sums up our role that sometimes when we go into a ward and there's lots of very intelligent people and they all know lots of very intelligent medical things I have no idea what they're talking about they sometimes look at us and go oh, you know, you're getting in our way or you know, you're a bit of a nuisance and they don't always see that actually what we can bring adds value But it's not just them who sometimes understand. Because sometimes we come out and they go see the patient and think, wow, all they needed was someone to talk to. All they needed was someone to listen. A lot of the anxieties disappear. Maybe they don't need that prescription anymore. But everyone has the role of the Good Samaritan, don't they? Whatever we do, whether it's working or living and whoever we interact with, but it's a way of describing what we do as chaplains. And I'm, I'm aware that my mic's moving, sorry. Um, but as a chaplain, I try my best to be a source of strength and a source of resilience and support. And I offer that knowing that God is my strength and my support. And I'm so glad that at uni, that, that's the big one for me. I'm so glad, because if I had known there was a chaplain at uni, I would have totally taken advantage of it, but I didn't know there was one. Um, so I feel like I, I, I'm, I'm trying to describe my job, but I, I, I don't want to, to turn it into this is what I do. Um, but, but being a chaplain is such an honour. It's such a privilege because you get to meet vulnerable people and help them find strength, and, and that's why I stick by. I think that's what Jesus was telling us to do when he was telling us to go and do likewise. I'm going to stop there. I'm going to stop there, and I'm going to ask that we, we move on and sing another hymn. A touching place. Sometimes a song can just sum up everything you wanted to say but couldn't say properly. That was a beautiful choice. And Before our passage is read to us, um, I asked that I could give you a bit of a disclaimer um, of what's to come. As I prepared for today, I was kind of unsure of whether or not I was making the right choice in the passage that I picked. But as many of you all know, you don't often feel that you have a choice in the process. And our passage is described as a text of terror. And after it's been read and the music of reflection is done, um, I'm going to bring a sermon which talks about a text of terror. I'm not going to try and avoid it. I'm not going to read it and then we talk about something totally different. So really this was just a chance for me to prepare you for that before it's read and to see that we use this time of reflection to prepare ourselves. Um, And for most of you that might be in a, in a normal way within yourself quietly um, but for others that might be about making sure you're sitting beside someone that that knows you well and you feel safe with. So I just feel like it's important to mention that and also mention that don't worry about anyone else seeing you because people will be looking at themselves and thinking about themselves. Katrina mentioned me that you're very attentive, mentioned to me you, very attentive listeners which put me as a member of a congregation a bit to shame um, but I believe that means that, that this is going to be a good process and, and you'll, you'll, um, hopefully you'll understand where I'm coming from with bringing this passage um, and we can talk about it afterwards if you want
0: Now David's son Absalom had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar and David's son Amnon fell in love with her. Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of David's brother Shimea. Now Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to Amnon, "O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me something to eat, and prepare the food in my sight, so that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight, so that I may eat from her hand. So David sent home to Tamar saying Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down She took dough, kneaded it made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes Then she took the pan and set them out before him But he refused to eat Amnon said, send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber so that I may eat from your hand. So Tamar took the cakes that she'd made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her come lie with me my sister she answered him no my brother do not force me for such a thing is not done in Israel do not do anything so vile as for me where could I carry my shame and as for you you would be as one of the scoundrels in Israel now therefore I beg you Speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he forced her and lay with her. Then Amnon was seized with a very great loathing for her. Indeed, his loathing was even greater than the lust he'd felt for her. Amnon said to her, Get out. But she said to him no my brother for this is wrong in sending me away it's greater than the wrong that you have done to me but he would not listen to her he called the young man who served him and said put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her now Tamar was wearing a long robe with sleeves for this is how the virgin daughters of the king were clothed in earlier times His servant put her out and bolted the door after her. But Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she was wearing and put her hand on her head and went away crying aloud. Her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Be quiet for now, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar remained a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard all these things, he became very angry. But he would not punish his son Amnon because he loved him, for he was his firstborn. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, Neither good nor bad for Absalom hated Amnon because he had raped his sister Tamar.
1: Thank you, Anne. <laughs> sensitive story and I think that's why it's called a text of terror because it really is a story of terror but I had to start from where I was, not as a victim like Tamar but as someone who's very frustrated and if I'm being honest, frustrated with the Bible I couldn't come here and share a story with you that we could all preach quite easily because we know it well and we know it well because it's something we can learn a lot from But I had had to be honest with myself so that what I bring to you is something I've had to really work through with God. For the last wee while I've felt frustrated when I think about the Bible. So for God to speak to me I had to engage with that frustration and I had to allow myself to maybe get rid of it and maybe move forward. And when I think about the the Bible, I think of men and... I'm a woman standing here. But I'm not highlighting that they're men. I'm just saying it because it's a fact. Um, But men who made a lot of mistakes. Silly mistakes, prideful mistakes. Peter denying Jesus but insisting he wouldn't. I mean, if Jesus tells you that you're going to deny him, you can at least trust that even if you don't want it to happen, he he might be right. Or Jonah... Three days in a stomach of a whale before he'll finally do what Jesus asks him to do. Well he could not Jesus, God asks him to do. And then we have David, who is known as the man after God's own heart, who steals other people's wives and then kills the men in the process, or has to be stopped by other people's wives to finally do the right thing. And then one of his wives. Abigail. Now, after today, if you want an encouraging story about a really good woman, read the story of Abigail. She's my favourite character in the Bible. But had David been a bit more like one of his wives, Abigail, maybe he'd be a bit better off. She had a bit of strength and a bit of wisdom. I know that David is a much-loved character, and I'm not trying to speak badly of him intentionally. But he's not our focus today, and when when his part in the story comes in, we'll go back to him. But today, our focus is on Tamar. And I start knowing that there's a bittersweet ending, that that we don't get the ending that we would hope for (coughs) disappointing ending. And that's another place where I feel frustrated. My dad always says you can learn from leadership, whether it's good or bad. You might be learning what you want to try and copy or what you don't want to do. And I think this story is a little bit about learning what not to do. The psalm we read at the beginning of our service was a psalm of David, a man grateful to God for forgiveness, for mercy, work of vindication and justice for all who are oppressed. And I think we'll come back to that psalm later on to see and think more deeply about how David handles the situation. Before our story, in the chapters before, we see David going through a really difficult time, a lot of pain and grief when one of his sons dies, pleading with God to make his ill child better. His first response is to worship, but then he goes to Bathsheba, and they they, they console one another, and Solomon is born. And the passage ends by saying, God loves Solomon. But our story has consequences in our next part. The part that we didn't read. Because the next part has revenge. And it would almost be like it would be better if this story just didn't happen. If the authors of the book just thought, right, let's just keep that out. We'll just pretend that didn't happen. But they don't. So it's our duty to not ignore them in this stage of David's life there's pain and grief and loss but it isn't about David he has a much loved character but this morning it's about Tamar, not him and I'm not going to be able to pronounce the names as well as Anne did but I'll do my best our story's about Tamar and her brothers Absalom and Amnon these are our three main characters in our story and the two other influential people are David and Joradab. Tamar is described as a beautiful woman. That and who she relate, is related to is really all we get about her. But she is given a name which gives any other character and herself power. But it's quite unusual for her to be given her name. But when it comes to describing Amnon we get emotions and feelings and more detail about how he feels as a person. And our language is so suggestive. It starts by saying love. He fell in love. And he's tormented. As if somehow were to feel sorry for him. And it's because he can't do anything to her. The to her is a big part of the problem. So straight away it's not about love. It's about control straight away our writer makes Amnon the perpetrator the one with the conflicting feelings the one with the power who's allowed to have feelings and emotion and Tamar is given none she's a virgin and she's beautiful describing facts Amnon is in love and tormented and ill and struggling because it's impossible they're describing feelings and want of actions. So straight away there's an imbalance. And I don't know if the imbalance seems to suggest that the author is sympathetic or if the author has just given us details so that we can't hide from the whole story and that Amnon can't hide from the whole story either. Jonadab is then brought in and he's described as a crafty man. And I think he's someone we're supposed to consider our real bad guy. Amnon's excuse. He gives Amnon a deceptive way of getting what he wants. He allows him to feel entitled, as if somehow it's okay for him to act on his impulses. Instead of telling him he was wrong, or he shouldn't be thinking that way, or helping him see beyond his own feelings, or even asking How do you think Tamar feels? And straight away things shift from potential to imminent because there's now a way of making it happen. And the language of love disappears. It's now a language of control. So doing what Jonadab suggests, Amnon plays at being ill and when his father comes to visit says having his sister visit would help make him feel better. And I noticed that in the beginning of the story, he doesn't talk about Tamar as his own sister. (coughs) And now to make David sympathise, he starts to talk about her as his own sister. There's so much deception and deceit. Deceiving his father, speaking in a brotherly way, to try and get Tamar alone having lost a child to illness before David knows the pain of an unwell and dying son and I feel like that's been exploited a little bit and that's not really something that we've ever explored before and the author doesn't explore that either and I'm sure he wouldn't want his son to go without so with blinkers on David goes to Tamar himself and asks her to visit his brother. We don't know what Tamar says. We don't know how Tamar feels. And I guess we can believe she innocently visits her brother to do what was asked. And she'd have been there for a long time. I think that's something that I really struggle with. Making bread, making cakes doesn't happen quickly. My, My... my mum um, had a, a bread maker. And, I mean, she did nothing. All she did was put the bread in the thing and it did it all for her. But even that took a long time. But there's something about it taking a long time that allows that allows it to build. The making the dough, the kneading it, the making the cakes, the baking the cakes. All in his sight is a long process. And the author allows us to almost experience that tension and that premeditation build The author doesn't just skip over it. Amnon, once it's done, refuses to eat and insists that everyone leaves. And we still don't know how Tamar feels about that. Because her author doesn't tell us. I can't imagine that situation. I can't imagine it personally. But I can't imagine she'd be there thinking this is normal. Or this, this is okay. Yeah, everyone, you can leave. There's something about the realness of this that doesn't make sense for her to be okay with it all. Tamar does what she's instructed, and she takes what he has made. She has made to him. We are told he takes hold of her and commands that she lies with him and even says my sister that taking a hold traps her gives her less room no compromise no room to say no because he is more powerful and has physical strength which suggests he feels like he has to assert some sort of authority yet what amazes me is that our author allows us to know that she does respond she does say no My brother, don't force me. First, she's straightforward. There's no denying what she wants or, in this case, doesn't want to happen. The simple answer, no, should be enough. She then mentions my brother. And I'd imagine that's her hoping to reinforce how wrong it is with their relationship. Then she makes it clear that by lying with him is not what they as a people would do. and and her reasons grow and grow and and I think what makes that harder to take is that in a situation of of abuse or something bad happening to be holding on if if someone's not letting go or backing off there's that sense that you have to keep trying to come up with a reason that's going to to make sense to them and nothing worked, she begged and she begged she even said speak to the king if if you want this to be done properly if it was love, surely he'd have wanted it to be done properly. It all builds and builds. And that loosening, the grip not happening, is such a vivid image. And not a very comfortable image for us to be thinking about on a, on a Sunday morning. And then he does it. He rapes her. He doesn't listen. His passion, his pride, his sense of entitlement, his need, whatever it is that makes him think it's okay for him to go away with, get away with it, is enough for him to do it. He's physically stronger and he rapes her. I don't think we talk about passages like this very often and I think it's a risk to bring it up. It's difficult to look at, they're hard to make sense of, they're hard to take, they're horrible to think of, they're sensitive And frankly, the act is so wrong, but the Bible shares them. Amnon takes advantage of his privilege, his physical strength, her physical weakness, to get what he wants, wants, regardless of the impact or the pain that he may cause. Because all that mattered to him at that time was his own desire. I'm going to keep going through with the story, but we're going to come back to that. After he's satisfied and done, the language of the writer dramatically changes. He's filled with shame, but it's affronted as loathing, as if it's her fault. She's the one who did this. And instead of talking about love, the writer talks about lust, which is a complete shift. As if we hadn't known all along that it wasn't really love. And we can't tell if he's trying to fool us or fool fool himself. But ultimately, Tamer has no power. And he sends her out. And she knows that leaving will cause her even more shame. And I love the fact that the writer keeps her voice. She still is given a voice. You did this to me. She's making sure he's the one who's accountable. She's reminding him he did this, he forced this, he caused this and it wasn't consensual. But he doesn't listen and he doesn't take responsibility. Getting someone to literally lock her out. Tamar's reaction to what happened shouldn't be seen as unusual, I don't think. She valued her virginity she'd been violated and destroyed emotionally and sexually abused by someone we can only assume she trusted. During her reaction, it's so public. I find that really a surprise because I think nowadays in in our culture to to react to something like that is a risk. There's, There's the fear factor of no one believing you whereas here she's free to to express her grief and her pain and her agony in the last few verses that we read I can't believe they happen soon after Amnon got rid of her he seems magically cured of his love but also magically cured of his illness and Tamar's brother Absalom comes to her and asks her what's happened It seems he knows through her reaction. And it seems he knows who it was as well. Piecing it all together. And I find it very frustrating that he says, do not take it to heart. I mean, that just made me really angry. (laughs) And didn't really help with the whole frustrated thing. But her brother takes her in. Her brother loves her, her brother doesn't reject her, Absalom takes her in but she becomes a desolate woman there's no healing, there's no restoration there's no new life, there's no justice there's no forgiveness and our passage ends with Amnon's punishment and retribution which is nothing nothing Although David was angry, he didn't punish him because he loved him, because he was his firstborn. And although our psalm at the beginning says, He doesn't keep his anger forever, and as far as the east is from the west, so far removed are our transgressions. It also reads, The the Lord works vindication for all who are oppressed. Tamar lived a pretty privileged life the daughter of a king beautiful but in this moment and in this passage this is not privilege this is oppression Tamar didn't have to be raped and Amnon didn't have to get away with it but she is and he does and the injustice is created not just by the action itself but by the reaction of those who can do something about it by doing nothing David helps to create an injustice and keep an injustice going and we talked at the beginning about the revenge that comes and it does Amnon has revenge on him which creates more sinning and more more of a culture of killing and, and and there's there's never any sense of peace not just because of his actions but because of what David missed so what did David miss as Christians who have a message of forgiveness as Christians who who know much more about God than than David did because of the revelation of Jesus after, long after David's life What did David not do that we can to seek justice for those who are oppressed those who are vulnerable those who are abused I think as Christians and I speak for myself here we're often scared to think too deeply about justice my dad will tell you that I'm a social justice fanatic because even as a kid if I saw someone being bullied I wasn't okay with it in school, and, and but, but even then, when it comes to this, we're, we're scared to think too deeply about justice because I think it can often lead us back to an unhealthy place of, of sin and hell and repentance and shouting fire and, and all sorts of things. And all that scary stuff is stuff I generally try to avoid unhealthily. So how do we seek justice of God and the forgiveness of God that would help find restoration. To tell you the truth, I don't have the answer. And I'm sorry that I'm bringing you a difficult passage and I'm not bringing you a nice, neat answer at the end to make us all feel better. We have more knowledge than David. I'm not saying that lets him off the hook. That makes it okay, (coughs) but we do have more knowledge. But that knowledge includes... That Tamar wasn't the only woman who experienced this. Or the only person. That pain and suffering, objectification, receiving no mercy, no justice, is a reality for a lot of people. We know how Jesus reacts to women and talks to women. I'm not going to go down that road and just ignore the fact that we've just talked with this passage, but I think it's important to bring Jesus into it. When Jesus met the the woman caught in adultery, he doesn't hurt her, but he does tell her to go sin no more because it's apparently her sin. This is Amnon's sin, so it's different. But there's something about the way that that, that Jesus has grace and forgiveness of her. But it's not quite the same, is it? And that's hard when we don't have, have stories that align with each other. Jesus comes to correct things, but he doesn't give us an exact an exact replica for us to work out. I believe in the grey. I believe in the complex Bible. I find it harder to talk to people who don't believe in God when it comes to the complex Bible. If they give me enough time, usually I get somewhere. And as much as it frustrates me, I'm really glad that the Bible doesn't hide these kinds of stories. It's hard to take, maybe not appropriate for a Sunday morning. But I'd rather share the true, difficult complexities that the Bible shares than easy to dismantle truths. Because life is difficult, life is complex, life has pain, life is messy. We can't ignore the injustice. We also can't ignore the ripple effects that injustice has. But we also have grace and forgiveness of God. But how do we communicate the two? I find we often end up in one boat or the other, don't we? I was in college, at the Baptist College, and... um, we sat in a class, an ethics class, and we had these kinds of really difficult conversations. And I was often very, the, the very judgmental person. I was often very quick to say, no, it's not okay. That's that. Whereas a group of men in the other side of the room, and it wasn't all men, but lovely guys I'm good friends with, but they would all say, no, you have to find a way to forgive people. And I go, nope, nope, it's not okay. So I know, I know where I'm coming from. I know that I've got that, and I've got that baggage of, of not being willing to forgive that quickly. And I had to learn something from them about forgiveness. I had to learn to be more gracious. I had to learn to be more merciful and understand that I've not got it all right and I'm not, I'm not all together. But how do we communicate that with people around us? I often think of the church as being a place of a good example. And that's hard when other people don't make us look like a good example or when mistakes are made and then things are covered up I really believe we can be a good example I really believe that we are a shining light of hope but I don't believe we can be any of those things if we aren't willing to grapple with the rough stuff and the difficult stuff and learn from the mistakes of those that we trust those that we see as a man after God's own heart. I have a friend I have two friends, I've got more than two friends but I've got two friends um, One, both of whom are not Christians I've, um, working in the hospital kind of ha- makes that happen a bit where you spend a lot of time with people who, who don't share the same life experience as you and um, one of them Phoned me when I was I was a teenager. My dad was a minister in Fife at the time, and she phoned me from Glasgow and said, "Having to do an assignment for college doesn't make sense. Don't get it." I said, "Okay." I said, "Well, I'm 14. I don't really know what you're talking about, but give me a try." And she said, "Well, why why does it say an eye for an eye in the Old Testament? Yep, you know the passage. And then in the New Testament it says something totally different." She couldn't handle the fact that it was a contradiction. She, she says, well, why are the two together? Why haven't you separated them? And in her mindset, she just couldn't get it. It just didn't make sense to her. But I work with a girl um, who was brought up in a Baptist church and left because um, her lifestyle choice wasn't something that they liked and they made it quite clear that she wouldn't really be welcome if she kept that up. So, so she left, and um, which is a real shame. And it's really good that I'm a Baptist and although... When I'm in the hospital, I'm not there technically as Baptist. I get to have really good conversations with her. She asks me lots of questions. She's very intrigued. But she has a different understanding. She, she understands that the, the, the Jesus who came to restore, the Jesus who came to teach us where we went wrong, the Jesus who came to teach us how to learn from our mistakes, even if he doesn't give us set examples. <coughs> That's the Jesus I believe in. The Jesus who teaches us and forgives us and helps us to find restoration. I don't feel like I've done Tamar justice this morning. We kind of abandoned her at the back. But in our community, in our community, in this hotel, out with this hotel, in Byers Road, if nowhere else, There'll be lots of women who've had experiences like Tamar. And I hope that as a church, we can be a light. We can be a place where they find justice, but they also find restoration. Where they can find new life. Let's stand to sing our next hymn.
2: Amen. Mm-hmm.
3: words from the Scottish paraphrase of Genesis chapter 28. Through each perplexing path of life, our wandering footsteps guide, and from the book of Micah, what does the Lord require? That we do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. Let us pray and let us listen for God. God of all wisdom, yet found in the soul of a child. God of all grace, yet walking through us, with us, through life's complexities and ambiguities. Draw close to us now. And let us reflect on this past week and call to mind a moment when you, when I, experienced the wisdom and grace of God through the actions of another person. When we were able to reflect the wisdom and grace of God to help or to support or encourage another person. And perhaps also when we missed such an opportunity, and we know it. We reflect in a silence. And let us give thanks for the moments when we catch glimpses of the presence of God's wisdom and grace in others. And in ourselves, when in a moment of insight we grasp the outrageous and overwhelming truth of a wisdom and a grace so deep and so wide that it shocks and jolts our trivial and petty preoccupations. And so in this context, we pray for our world, that the wisdom and grace of God will keep breaking through in unexpected places, bringing transformation in places of great need. And this morning we think of the increasing spiral of violence in Brazil, the political unrest in Pakistan, the never-ending violence in the lands of Syria and Iraq. And in the events and circumstances that briefly make the headlines then drop away from Ukraine, from Nigeria, from Yemen... And this morning, as the centenary of the beginning of the Battle of Passchendaele, or Flanderschlacht, is marked, we pray of these matters with particular urgency. And we pray for ourselves that we may live the wisdom and grace of God in us and through others. That we may live that life in solidarity with the powerless. And that in living that life we may embrace our experience but transcend our prejudices. Come to us, Spirit of Wisdom. Come to us, Christ of Grace, with wounded hands, outstretched, embracing all creation through the lives of those of us who claim to follow you. And we continue in our prayers in the giving of an offering.
1: sing our final worship song but just before we do that I'd like to thank you all for having us with you this morning so thank you for having us peace and of justice be with us now and always in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit.